today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. I'm Scott Thompson. Coming up on today's show, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has a convo with U.S. President Donald Trump. What was said. Also, the president back on TV tonight in the ultimate reality game show. Also, Doug Ford pens a letter to the civil service. What did he have to say? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Tell your friends and thanks for listening. Prime Minister Trudeau had a phone conversation with the U.S. president in regards to the detainee situation with China to talk about this and other things, Trudeau and Trump. Ben Roswell is with us, President Canadian International Council, and is on the line with us now. Thanks, Ben, for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Uh, why the chat between Donald Trump and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau? Why is this happening now? Well, it's uh, high time uh, that it happened after um, the friction that Canada has taken in its relationship with China. Why now? Why not, why not earlier? Well, uh, the, the uh, Secretary of State uh, took his time in thanking Canada. Um, I think the... The, the spin that's coming out of Ottawa on this, that this is for the prime minister to thank the president is, uh, is a useful way to kind of couch it publicly. It's probably more uh, a question of the prime minister saying, what took you so long? So, uh, obviously, we know the story about uh, the U.S. asking us to ta- uh, detain uh, the CFO of Huawei in Vancouver prior uh, to Christmas. Um, why has China not shown the disdain for the U.S. as they have for Canada? Why have they not taken it up with them since they instigated this whole thing? They seem to be really intimidated by the United States. I, uh, I find it strange that they're directing their ire at Canada when it's uh, the United States that's imposed these outrageous tariffs uh, on China, really hurting the bilateral trade and the economies of both countries. Um, it's, uh, it's strange to me that the government of Xi Jinping wouldn't direct his ire at the country that's actually causing damage to uh, to China right now. So, you know, Trump is kind of getting off scot-free. He's imposing um, these really damaging uh, tariffs and getting away with it in the in the China-United States uh, relationship. So, you know, he has a lot to thank Canada for, and uh, hopefully he conveyed his thanks to our prime minister in that call. Uh, what have what what would have been the prime minister's tone uh, to to Donald Trump on this? Because basically, we're taking the heat from something that they started, and again, as you mentioned, certainly in no hurry to address any of this. Well, we get kind of put through the ringer here, uh, as well as Canadians being detained. Um, what would his tone be with the president? Again, why not sooner? So you know, the real relationship isn't so much between the prime minister. And the president, uh, people in the U.S. government uh, know that uh, Canada is a, a loyal ally. And all that the prime minister needs to do in this uh, call is to make sure that the signals coming out of the president is that it's okay for the United States to go on um, doing business with, uh, with Canada and to collaborating with us. So he doesn't need to have a combative tone with Trump. You know, I think he's actually quite sophisticated in his way of managing the massive ego uh, of the president, which is to say what he needs in order to get the public statement out of, uh, out of Trump that he, uh, that he requires. And then the real business of the U.S. government uh, is done without the president's uh, really knowledge or, uh, uh, or concern. And so we will continue to do our work with the people inside the U.S. administration um, that see the real values and the real uh, interests that we, uh, that we share in common. So how does this phone call change the discussion in regard to the detainees? Well, I don't think it's going to change much with uh, the Chinese because they, uh, uh, I think this is going to take quite a long time for this detainee situation to sort itself out. Uh, it does at least um, it, uh, restore um, the, the relationship, the the appearance of a Canada and the United States being on the same page about this, which some people had started to uh, uh, started to doubt. Um, the detainees, you know, we're we're going to take months getting through this extradition request with uh, Meng Wahui because that's just how long our judicial system takes, and uh, the executive branch just doesn't have that much control over the situation. And my guess is that China is just going to wait uh, for that whole um, extradition process to work its way through the Canadian courts before they make any decision about Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. 
Uh, what is Donald Trump's thought on these charges, which are obviously uh, going to bring the CFO back to the United States uh, to face the courts? Uh, will his mind change in the near future on whether that is going to proceed or not, whether extradition is going to proceed? What's his take on that? Would they have shared that in this discussion, in this phone call? Well, Donald Trump's views change every single day on every issue. Um, it's, there's, it's not like there's any kind of strategic thought going on. He wakes up and he tweets whatever he's going to tweet, uh, and he's completely unpredictable and completely ineffective as a leader. Um, so there's not much you can do to kind of shift his thinking because it'll shift again as soon as our prime minister hangs up the hangs up the phone. The real game to be played is with uh, the cabinet officials, the senior members of the U.S. Uh, administration. And again, this phone call basically just clears the way for the normal Canada-U.S. cooperation to kind of resume its course. How does China now react to this situation? When this all started, nobody, it seemed like Canada was uh, alone on an island out by itself. Now, of course, we're hearing uh, more allies speak up, and then this with the, pre- uh, with the president. How does China react to that? So if it's true that uh, China has arrested these Canadians in some kind of retaliation for Canada's uh, extradition, uh, respecting the extradition request, which we, we think is probably the case. It's actually because uh, Canada is not alone. Canada is a close ally of the United States and a treaty partner of the United States. If they are raising the pressure on us, it's actually to try and introduce a wedge between us and the United States, and that's not succeeding. Canada is not alone in the world. Canada has a rich uh, network of alliances and partners uh, and it's precisely because of that uh, that rich network that we've been targeted uh, in this case. Again, this call between the Prime Minister and the President, obviously not close personal friends, but the fact that the two of them are able to, uh, uh, to agree on a common approach uh, just reaffirms that China's failing in its attempt if it's trying to separate Canada from the United States. Did, did China, I mean... China knows the world as much as anyone else, uh, even though they have their own way of looking at it. Did they honestly think they could drive a wedge between Canada and the United States, that there were more loyalties towards China than the United States? Well, there's certainly some people that are speculating that the United States has really hurt China with these tariffs, and so China needs to fight back in some way. But if they're not uh, willing to take the United States on directly in some kind of frontal uh, attack, that perhaps the way to pressure the United States is to uh, is to go after its uh, its allies and its friends. You know, I think about sort of classic bully behavior. If you're if there's a bully in a in a kindergarten uh, class and he's uh, wants to show his strength, he doesn't pick on the strongest person in the class. He picks on whoever the friend of the strongest person is. Hmm. So that might be the kind of elemental logic that's going on with uh, with China. But in that case, you know, they picked on the wrong country because Canada's not going to be pushed around on this kind of thing. We're not going to overrule our judicial system and suspend the rule of law in Canada just because China's upset. So they've kind of picked a losing strategy in trying to push Canada around. Uh, I think a lot are finally trying, are finally realizing that. What does this do to uh, uh, any sort of trade in the future? I, I mean, uh, the West has been looking at China as the golden goose for decades now. Um, and here we are, especially when you're talking about things like the 5G network, trying to gain trust, um, trying to... It seems that we were trying to impress uh, China more than China was respecting our laws of the land. Uh, what has this done for the, the Huawei and the 5G network and the backbone they were trying to be a part of? I mean, this just sort of rings true to all that our allies have said about security in regard to this long ago. So the economic interests remain the same. This is a massive market in China, and Canada's a pretty significant market as well. So the two economies have uh, a natural tendency to want to trade with uh, with one another. Trade works best when it's in the context of a system of rules that both sides uh, respect. Uh, we have been able to trade in a mutually beneficial way with China for uh, for a long time, and we want to keep doing that. We want to keep increasing that. But that starts with uh, with rules that are respected on, uh, on both sides. China's uh, really shooting itself in the foot um, with these attentions, partially because it's sending a signal to all its trading partners that it might not be a very reliable partner. But it's not... Um, the end of the uh, the story by any means. Mm-hmm. 
um, China has an interest in resolving this dispute with Canada eventually. It might take some time. Um, and we have an interest, and I think that's why you'll, you see the government taking actually quite an even tone. It hasn't jumped up on a, on a Thai horse and denounced human rights abuses in China or what have you to try and get back at the Chinese. Because right. they've got their eye on the, the long game, which is eventually um, we're going to have a, a productive rules-based uh, trading relationship with China, and that's going to work for us, and it's going to work for them once we get this unfortunate situation of the detainees out of the way. Uh, what have we learned from this whole uh, situation? How have the rules changed? And is, it, it, does China have to learn as big a lesson? I do think so, yes. The, uh, let me start with, with uh, what um, China has learned, because they're experimenting with a new role for themselves in the international system. You know, there's two kinds of power in the international system, the power to force another country to do something and the power to convince them. They're trying the former out right now, uh, but ultimately, they'll be more successful if they embrace the power to convince. And they have that ability uh, to do that. Um, they hopefully are seeing the tremendous price that they're paying by adopting this kind of role as a, as a bully. Um, and I, I have confidence that this is a government with a lot of intelligent people and uh, pretty sophisticated foreign policy and an understanding of how things work in the world. And I think uh, calmer heads are going to prevail. For Canada, I think this is a reaffirmation uh, for us of the importance of uh, our alliances and the importance of our partnerships. Um, this is the source of Canada's power. It's not what we have in our own arsenal, you know, our own military, our own um, uh, economic power. Our power comes from our ability to band together with other countries. But we need those other countries to honor their commitments to us as well. And so we should hold the United States to account if they're taking advantage of Canada for some purpose that they're pursuing in the China relationship, we should hold them to account. And I'm pretty sure that that was one of the objectives of this call between Prime Minister Trudeau and President Trump as well. Are you surprised we are where we are? No, I think that the whole international system is in flux right now. It's a really unsettled time. Um, each one of uh, our countries are kind of dealing with a new uh, reality with power not being what it was uh, before. Uh, there's different uh, challenges to our alliances, like who's who's banding together with uh, with who, and this is all part of a of a, an attempt to kind of figure out where our future interests lie. Does this um, does this make us focus on the importance of our allies? Yeah, I do. You know, so there certainly have been some people in Canada that have thought, well, maybe our Maybe our future lies more with, uh, with China. Uh, we should diversify away from the United States, embrace Asia Pacific. You know, you've heard all that. And even uh, the idea of a free trade agreement with China, I think that is very firmly on the back burner. Now, the idea that we would open up our economy to a country that doesn't respect the rule of law, we now start to see what those costs are. So probably less likely at this stage that we're, gonna, uh, we're going to uh, move out of the U.S. orbit and into the Chinese orbit, for example. That's uh, That's this has put paid to any of those sort of notions. We are very much uh, committed to other liberal democracies, other countries that follow the rule of law, that play by the rules. Those are where Canada's interests are, and that's where Canada's power lies, is in building up those relationships. Uh, so this is pretty much a blast of reality for everyone. It's, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a water, um, you know, glass full of cold water kind of thrown in our face to help us wake up and realize that it's a dangerous world out there. Uh, this is all about power, and Canada's power comes from from those relationships with its fellow liberal democracies, and it's time for us to get back to work building up those alliances and those institutions. Uh, with the whole uh, arrest of the Huawei CEO and, and you know, uh, this investigation going back uh, quite a while, uh, it's certainly not new. That being said, as you mentioned, uh, the, the tension between China and the United States in regard to trade. How much of this was coordinated, do you think? How much, or perhaps did the left hand just not even know what the right hand is doing? How did we get here? So, you know, I don't think it's so much about what Canada has done or has, uh, has not done. You, you would expect Canada to extradite someone that the United States has asked us to because we're legally obliged to do so under the extradition uh, treaty. Mm -hmm. Now, what's behind the U.S. request for extradition? I can't really venture a guess on 
what they do, but, you know, we follow our commitments. We've got a, a signed treaty with the United States, and they say we want to extradite X and Y person, and then we extradite, we go through that process. Uh, I so think, is this just bad timing, do you think? So the timing is, the, the, the main factor about the timing, in my mind, is that it's happened just after the United States has taken off its gloves and has started to pummel the Chinese with these massive, uh, massive tariffs. If I was sitting in Beijing, I'd probably be pretty angry about that as well. Uh, and I guess in its anger, perhaps China has uh, lashed out and acted in some ways that aren't terribly logical or well thought through. Um, if that's the case, then yes, it is a, perhaps we are the victim of, uh, of timing. We've got a president in the United States who does not play by the rules, uh, is quite happy to, uh, to take off the gloves and tar- start throwing punches even at longstanding allies and, uh, and partners. And that, uh, that just destabilizes the whole international system. The best thing for Canada to do is to keep, uh, keep our heads about ourselves, to keep calm and look at our interests and, uh, see through some of the, some of the bluster and focus on our long-term interests. Ben Roswell, President, Canadian International Council, has been with us. Ben, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tonight, the president, uh, you think the Oscars and the Golden Globes are big. Uh, let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's in Washington and, uh, of course, talking about the uh, presidential address tonight. Reggie, thanks for taking the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. You know, I, it's just amazing what must come across your desk on any given day. What is the buzz in Washington today about this? Well, I mean, this kind of came up yesterday via Twitter. The president on the heels of a tweet from his press secretary who said that he was going to be traveling down to the U.S. border uh, to kind of make an inspection down around uh, McCarran, Texas. Uh, We found out that he was then going to make a request to the media networks to allow him to take over the 9 o'clock hour Eastern uh, to basically make his pitch and say, look, we have a humanitarian crisis down on the southern border. Uh, This is my pitch that's been going on for the last couple of years. Here's why we need to build that wall. It was a bit of back and forth. A lot of networks were trying to struggle to say, well, you know, should we give him the time? Should we not give him the time? We didn't let President Obama do this in 2014. We said it was too political. But what they've decided is, yes, we'll allow the president to speak tonight, but we are going to allow for a Democratic response right afterwards to potentially fix up any of the uh, bits of, of potential, you know, misinformations that may come out during the 10 or 12 minutes that Trump talks. As soon as I heard about this, my first question was, will they allow a rebuttal? Why? Talk about that scenario, because normally that isn't done in situations like this. Why now? So normally it's done after something like the State of the Union, because this is the president. That's the president's opportunity to basically say, this is what my administration has done over the last year. Here's what we plan to do. And it gives the opposition a chance to say, look, here's what the president's office has done. And here's what we need to do to work on a bilateral thing going forward. This uh, is a little different because this is simply an address to the nation uh, where the president is trying to make a pitch or make a plea or or explain some kind of national alert or something that he wants people to be aware of. Uh, There is some precedent uh, behind this, though, a couple of years ago, it was around 2011, after the President uh, Obama at the time had made a national address on a matter. Uh, Speaker of the House at the time, John Boehner, was given an opportunity to uh, to make his response. So there is some precedent in this today. Uh, it, given the fact that this, uh, this border issue and this immigration issue, though, is weighing things down so heavily in the United States up to and including this partial closure, this is an opportunity for the Democrats to come out and say, look, we've been trying to work with the President. We've been trying to work with Republican leadership inside the Senate to end this blockade and, and get people back to work it hasn't worked so here's what we have to say how long will this be do both sides get the same amount of time well, I mean, anytime Donald Trump takes to a microphone, it's kind of an unknown as to whether or not it's going to be something quick or whether it's going to be a little more into the rambling side of things. So are they uh, going to cancel the movie of the week? Is that well, it? <laughs> I mean, you're, be- you're better off waiting till 930 to try and find something to watch. <laughs> but we are likely expecting this to be something around maybe 10, 12 minutes, because, again, he's going to be very scripted and try to be very on point while he's talking. And he's inside the Oval Office. He doesn't have that big throng of people standing around him like at a stump speech. So it does often make him a little more subdued and a little more uncomfortable to talk just to a camera with no one else there. Uh, how much, how difficult will it be for the opposition to mount a rebuttal on this until they've really heard what he says? I'm sure they've got talking points ready. How much is going into the crafting of that? 
Well, I mean, they're going to be looking at all of the numbers that he's been putting out, all of the numbers that the administration has been talking about for the last couple of days. I mean, there's there's a bit of a kerfuffle happening inside the Republicans right now. Just on Sunday, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders was on Fox News Sunday talking about, uh, you know, X number of thousands of people who have been crossing the border illegally and X number of them had been uh, had links to terrorist organizations. We now have White House counsel coming out to say, well, some of our colleagues were wrong on their numbers. Here are the actual numbers that are coming out of the State Department. So the Republicans are trying to get their numbers in order right now. Uh, the White House actually just put a statement out, basically kind of giving a potential outline as to what the president is going to talk about tonight. And he's going to make that pitch for the $6 billion wall, but he's also got this long list of hundreds of millions and into the billions of dollars for additional border elements that he's going to make requests for from the Democrats. So Democrats are going through this right now, going over the numbers, saying, look, we don't have all these billions and billions of dollars to give you. We have a country that's partially shut down and hundreds of thousands of people that aren't at work right now. That's where the big folks focus needs to be, not this kind of mythical, mystical problem down to the border that doesn't seem to be as big of an emergency as the president says that it is. What options does the president actually have in regards to the wall? Well, I mean, if he really wants to, he could declare uh, a national emergency and say that the crisis at the southwestern border is something that is going to cause problems for both the U.S. economy and for uh, security going forward. So if he does decide to do that, basically it circumvents Congress. It takes politics out of the decision-making process and would take money, billions of dollars, uh, that the Pentagon has already uh, kind of appropriated for other departments and other programs and military spending and give that all to the president. It would likely cause an uproar with civil liberties groups. It would likely cause an uproar uh, with a number of people inside the political world that would challenge this in the Supreme Court. But giving a president kind of uh, the ability to make these national declarations of emergencies, uh, especially when they're unfettered, can be a, a real problem going forward because it basically puts all the power into the president's pen and then lets him act as he pleases without having to have any oversight on it. Uh, many are saying that this this uh, TV time that he has asked for tonight, that these issues that he wants to address are not great enough to do such a thing. Uh, is this a national emergency? And is it really up to Donald Trump to determine that? I mean, is there any checks and balances there? Well, I mean, is it a national emergency? That's the big conversation right now between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans will sit there and say, look, the president's been saying for years that this is a big deal and we need to get this border wall built. Democrats are saying, look, the numbers of people who are making their way towards the U.S. border, well, they seem high. They're lower than they have been in you know years and decades past. But a number of these people who are coming to the border are not coming here as basically illegal immigrants trying to you know run up and over the border or, as the president said, drive down and kind of make a left turn and get into the country. A lot of these people are seeking, uh, you know, uh, asylum status, trying to flee countries in Central America where their uh, their governments are oppressing them, their governments are kind of running them out and, and kind of being corrupt. So many of the people who are coming up here are trying to do so on a legal matter, but they get lumped into this number that the president and his people put out there. Uh, is it a national emergency? We don't know if it is or not. The president could just simply say that it is because, look, he campaigned on getting this wall built. But you got to remember, the president's base is, is 35 or 40 percent strong, and they listen to whatever he says. So if he said to them right now, look, the border's not going to get built. That's not what the big problem is. They wouldn't fight back at it. They would sit there and say, well, the president told us it's not a problem anymore. It's okay for us to now not talk about it. Hmm. How much of this TV time will be addressed towards the wall specifically? How much will it be about the shutdown in general? Because I'm sure the majority of Americans, especially those that work for the government, want to know what's going on there. Well, the president's going to have to choose how he opens this up carefully, and he's going to have to choose where he makes his pauses properly, because again, like we said, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are sitting without a paycheck. They're sitting uh, at work without getting paid, and they don't know when they're going to be going back. A lot of them living paycheck to paycheck. So if the president opens up and says, look, I know you're at home right now. I know you're not working, but national security is at risk. It's a way to try and say, look, this is a problem that's affecting all of us right now, and the border is what's going to get you back to work. If he decides to jump right into the border and kind of ignore the fact that the government's in a shutdown or tries to deflect the blame and put it on the Democrats, I think that's going to cause problems going forward because you have to remember a lot of Republicans in leadership and throughout the Senate right now, they're basically siding with the president, but many of them are going to be up for election in two years and we're kind of just kickstarting that election cycle. So the longer these people are watching the president talk about this government shutdown linked to a border and not getting paid, the more they're going to remember this when they go to the polls in two years. How does Donald Trump feel, do you think, uh, about a rebuttal uh, being allowed here? 
Well, I mean, the president likes to be the one who has the last word, so I'm sure it's not sitting well with him that he knows the Democrats are going to be able to fact check what he's saying as he's saying it in real time and then present their uh, their facts afterwards. You can likely imagine that either his Twitter feed or, or people close to the administration may bounce onto the cable shows uh, after 930 to try and provide uh, you know the final word when it comes to what the Republicans want to say. But uh, the networks, I mean, Fox seems to be the only one who hasn't put out a comment saying that they're actually going to run the rebuttal. But uh, for the most part, the network's allowing both sides to come out there and give and give their uh, their two cents on on this topic right now i mean it it boasts well for ratings but it also boasts well because it brings both sides together to watch exactly what's going on why do you think donald trump is is doing this i mean he spent so much of 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 his time uh, cultivating his base on twitter why all of a sudden do something like this, this well see, i mean this, this this doesn't seem to be in character for him i mean the big problem that, that donald trump is facing when it comes to this border wall and the way that he's been acting over the last kind of month or so since just before christmas uh was because both rush limbaugh and ann coulter had made these kind of comments to uh to the masses via social media that the, the president was basically giving in to the Democrats. He was acting as a puppet to the Democrats. They were kind of leading him down this way. And Rush Limbaugh and and Ann Coulter, yes, they're very right and they're very conservative, but their throngs of people that follow them are also very conservative and were very conservative long before Donald Trump was the Republican nominee. So now you have this incredibly large base of people who were kind of making fun of the president. And this is a president who likes good attention. He doesn't like negative news. He likes to be kind of front and focused and everybody paying attention to him. So to have this big section of the right now saying, well, look, the president's obviously playing into the hands of the Democrats right now. It's what ratcheted him up, and it's what kind of made the border wall all of a sudden this make-or-break deal that's literally impacting the lives of everybody from the federal government right down to people's local backyards. Uh, is Trump on Twitter as soon as he's off TV? I would be surprised if he didn't make any kind of tweet within the first half hour after he's off the air. I'm sure he'll want to sit there and watch to see what the Democrats uh, have to say afterwards so that he can kind of mount his argument and kind of go on a tweet storm. It's what we see him do. He's been kind of really pushing this border wall lately. Uh, you know, he's been pushing on Twitter as well, things about the economy, trying to make sure that the pod is stirred just enough so not all the focus is being on one thing. But, you know, it, what Donald Trump says and what he tweets can change by the minute. So how he reacts to how the Democrats uh, are responding to his words could change literally tweet by tweet. Will we see less Twitter, more TV from the president? Well, I mean, it's very possible. I mean, he has not been a, in uh, in the primetime spotlight for weeks and if not months now, because up until the election, he was going and stumping for people. Post-election, he didn't have any opportunities to kind of get himself on TV unless he was doing a daytime news or a daytime uh, kind of scrum at, at an event. So if the president really wants to make an effort, he could create events, but whether or not the networks are actually going to give them prime nine o'clock time, especially once the, you know, mid-season uh, is over and we get back into regular programming a couple of weeks from now on TV, networks are going to be very hesitant to give up all of their time because money talks when you're in TV. So is this a Hail Mary for the president or is this smart communication? Well, I mean, it's going to be difficult for him to make a broad appeal for this border when he goes up to speak tonight, because there's a significant majority of the population who's watching him saying the border wall is unnecessary right now. This whole caravan that you talked about leading up to the election didn't pan out the way that you said it was going to. We didn't have this massive influx of people coming into the country in November. And oddly enough, it just disappeared until Christmas time when we decided to start talking about it again. He has to be very careful about how he communicates the need for a border wall, the need for added security and the need for bipartisanship to get uh, Democrats on board to give him this money because the Democrats have already said, look, we will give you, uh, you know, a number of bills to reopen the government. We're just not going to give you any money for this border wall. We don't find that to be important enough. And he's simply saying, if you don't give me the border wall, we're not going to open the government. He said he would shoulder the shutdown. He's now deflecting it back to the Democrats. So communication is going to be huge when he speaks tonight and, and how he actually conveys that message. How can he stand up in front of America and ask for money for a wall when he insisted that Mexico Mexico was going to pay for it. It's not steel. It's going to be contract. Uh, sorry, concrete. How can he keep deflecting this stuff? Well, I mean, look, we, we've now learned that concrete may not be the concrete thing. It may be steel slats. It may be a fence that he wants to get built up, saying that this could be an opportunity to uh, continue to revitalize the steel sector across the United States. So he's already backtracked on one uh, one portion of how he w wanted the wall to be by simply saying, look, it'll be American built with steel, not concrete. You can see through steel. It's not a wall. Let's not call it a wall. Are they uh, using that imported concrete there? Well, <laughs> Is that what they're, they're bringing that, uh, that European concrete? He's, in. Like, he's trying try to make it a, uh, make a make 
America wall again. But I mean, when he's talking about uh, uh, the 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 border wall in general, he'll sit there and say, "Look, we're going to get it built, but Mexico will. They won't be paying for it up front. We have this new NAFTA, this USMCA deal, where we're going to be saving money here and there when it comes to trade talks and 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 you know job movements around the continent. So he he's trying to basically say, "Look, there's going to be some savings down the road when it comes to trade deals. That's where the money's actually coming from. But at the end of the day, if he goes ahead and declares this national emergency, it's not trade money that's going to be paying for this wall. It's going to be reallocated billions of dollars for current military projects that's going to be taken out of the Pentagon. Right. Short term. Sure, that might make sense. But down the road, we don't know where that money actually needed to be spent. Is this a, a war, a fight over terminology rather than border security? Well, semantics is playing a big thing right now because remember it was a wall, then it was a fence, then it was a barrier, then it was just some kind of divide that allows the two nations to be sovereign without getting in the way of each other. Depending on the mood of the president, depending on what material he's talking about, depending on what part of the border he's talking about, it depends on what kind of word he's using. So if he wants to use the word border wall like he's been using for the last couple of years, that's what gets the Republicans all fired up. Trying to lessen the words by saying a barrier or a fence or steel slats is what appears to be a softening of the tone to try and make it seem less extreme than it is. But Democrats are watching this saying, Mr. President, we've seen you speaking for the last three years. We know that this is a border wall. We know it's unnecessary. It's not an emergency. You can call it what you want. Nancy Pelosi's already said this wall is immoral. Uh, What are you expecting from this broadcast tonight? I mean, as you said, he's by himself. He's not in an arena with adoring fans. No cheers, chants, you know, no fans there. Uh, He's not at his best when he he does read scripts like this. Uh, Do you think this is going to work for him or against him? Well, I mean, the people that are going to be surrounding him, I'm sure the vice president will be in the Oval Office, his press secretary, a number of cabinet ministers, there are members, they'll all be standing kind of in the in the shadows of when he's speaking. That enough will be enough to keep the president going forward by saying, look, I've got the best and brightest people around here. Nobody knows uh, these American problems better than both me and these people here. That will be enough to kind of keep him going forward. Uh, whether or not, you know, this actually just becomes anything other than, you know, a, a, a rehashing of his greatest hits over the last three years, that's what most of the speculation is. He's already been told you're not getting this money you're not going to be moving forward with this we're going to challenge you in court but he's going to sit there and use this nine o'clock hour to say look you're watching me you're listening to me here are some numbers that nobody's going to be able to fact check because i'm here by myself right now and and hopefully he just you know he'll he'll assume that the people that are watching him are paying attention to him listening to those numbers and just breathing it all in do you think this will look like the typical presidential address uh the president at a desk the flag behind him or will there will there be bodies behind him do you think I mean, the president, you know, he, he likes to have a bit of an audience. He likes to, you know, come out with a little bit of fanfare, but he also likes to, you know, lavish the, the, the fact that he's in the spotlight of being the president. I wouldn't be surprised if there was nobody in the room with him or at least nobody on camera with him. He is a person, though, of props. He may try to bring a picture out. He may try to have something kind of behind him to prove that this border wall is necessary. He may try to have uh, maybe a video screen behind him. But I think this is considering it's his very first Oval Office address to the nation. I believe that he's probably going to do it in a more subdued tone. However, this is the president of surprise and mystery. So whether he could come out there, you know, with his entire cabinet and basically give them all time to speak. But we never really know what this president's going to do when, it, when he opens his mouth. Uh, so I guess it's pretty safe to say we're going to see something like this on Saturday Night Live this week. Uh, <laughs> what about the phone call between the president and the prime minister in regard to uh, the de- uh, detainees uh, and in China and such. What do you think was said? Uh, why taking so long to do that? Well, I mean, we don't actually know, it, you know, the full context of this phone call because the White House press office, uh, A, is partially been furloughed right now. But second of all, they've stopped giving a, a kind of a detailed release of what the president, you know, or what what they appear at the conversation to be. And I know Ottawa puts out uh, a different kind of readout from what conversations or what the topics were. But according to what we've got from the U.S. Uh, side of things, uh, this, this conversation took place. I mean, oftentimes the president will just kind of pick up the phone over a day or over a two day period and call a number of leaders just kind of to shoot the breeze about what's going on. But this ongoing conversation with uh, with uh, Donald Trump and with Ottawa about the situation in China, I mean, it's a big deal because the president is trying to make sure that trade deals don't get muddied in the waters between what's going on between the three countries right now. But he also wants to ensure that, you know, justice or at least the Justice Department wants to make sure that uh, justice is carried out for uh, crimes that they believe were committed when it comes to sanctions against Iran. So, I mean, the, the, the timing of this, you know, is a little is a little uh, uh, bizarre, given that there's no real communication lines between Ottawa and Washington right now since trade t- uh, stopped talking. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. The president picked up the phone. He had the conversation. What was his motive? We have actually no idea. 
Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington uh, producer and correspondent with Global News based out of Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight to see more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great reporting. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In a letter addressed to public servants in the province, Premier Doug Ford outlined his plans for this year, health care, jobs, a balanced budget. To talk about that and other things political, let's bring in Peter Graff, uh, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. And to you. Uh, common for a Premier to pen a letter to civil servants. Uh, not that common, uh, at least not for it to be uh, this degree of public. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, it is something that uh, is seen a bit less often, and so it raises a question about why it was done, uh, and one would have to think that uh, there was a bit of restlessness on the part of the public service, and uh, the government felt it was important to, to signal to them that they saw them as a partner in their project of governing. Uh, difference between writing this note and then actually making it public, although I guess if you're going to write something and send it to, to a civil servant, eventually it's going to be made public anyway, but this all part of the strategy? Uh, yeah, I'm sure part of it is involved in trying to uh, prepare Ontarians for what's going to be coming up in the spring, so it's not just to the public servants, but uh, also to signal to us what the priorities of the government are going to be. I mean, it's a government that's been uh, you know, quite active in the six months or so since it was elected, uh, but where people following from the outside may have a tough time saying, well, what are the real deliverables that it wants to, to achieve? You know, what are the real points that it wants us to be looking at in three years' time when we're moving into the next election and say that they've achieved? So I don't think many of us were looking for fewer uh, Toronto City councillors or uh, were that involved in the question about whether we needed or not some sort of francophone commissioner. Um, so, you know, these are a chance for Ford to really say, no, the, the points I really want to be judged on are uh, health care, quality of health care, and uh, balancing the budget. So is the purpose of this to rally the troops, rally the team? Uh, after all, there are you know, they're the people behind you. Or is this to refocus and tell the general public what we're up to? Well, I think it's both. I mean, uh, I think the main point probably was to realize that uh, the Ford government had done some things that were losing the confidence of the public service, and particularly you know, the most competent members of the public service who have options of, you know, going to the private sector if they feel they aren't uh, being respected in, in the public sector. And so I could imagine, for instance, the, the appointment of Ron Taverner as the head of the OPP probably made a lot of senior public servants ask whether they were going to be judged on the quality of their work or whether one had to be a friend of the Ford family to, to get those kinds of positions. Uh, uh, the manner in which the, uh, you know, there was a change to the Ontario Environmental Commissioner, but they didn't really bother tell the existing one what was happening to her job or where she would go afterwards. Again, I think senior public servants began to uh, to question, you know, whether it was a government that really was into acting professionally with their senior managers. So this letter, I think, is a way to try and calm the waters and say that, uh, you know, going forward, the government you know, is, wants to be clear about what its uh, its goals and perspectives are and sees an important role for public servants in making them happen. Who would have suggested this? You brought up an interesting aspect of, of the OPP investigation, um, you know, pointing at how public servants may look at that, thinking we're putting our time in, we're trying to, to, to climb the ladder, and it, it, it's not happening. Um, who, who would have suggested this? Well, I would expect it some people around Doug Ford. I mean, certainly reading the letter, it doesn't read like uh, Doug Ford speaks. <laughs> so I mean, it probably wasn't from his pen. Uh, it might not even. We may see that with the president it. tonight. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and it's natural too. I mean, we don't yep. we don't necessarily expect the, the premier to spend his time writing these things, and you know, their ghost writers don't always have to take on their voice. But you know, I presume uh, it may not have been his chief of staff, but uh, probably some people in the premier's office were noting that. There was uh, a level of kind of dispiritedness among the public sector, and if you want to involve a situation of making significant cuts to public programs, but without actually uh, laying anybody off, uh, you actually need the public service to really be on your side to be able to say, no, I think this is a way you might be able to do it. I mean, these are these are hard things to do. You require the people who have the knowledge to do it, and if they're skeptical about how they're going to be treated by the government, then they may not have their their full and enthusiastic cooperation. I mean, we might think of a kind of a similar example when Brian Mulroney uh, was elected prime minister in 1984. Uh, you know, the first thing he said is we're going to give the, the bureaucrats uh, pink slips and running shoes. 
uh, you know, which was popular as people who feel these bureaucrats are sitting around and not working very hard. But, you know, from the point of view of the public servants, uh, you know, particularly the senior managers who are working 50, 60 hour weeks, that uh, didn't exactly uh, win over their, you know, in, enthusiastic uh, support for that government. You know, compared to, say, someone like Stephen Harper, who refrained from that and ultimately, uh, you know, was able to work quite well with the public service in Ottawa and moving forward with his agenda. So I think Ford probably made a bit of an error in signaling to the, to the public servants that he wasn't necessarily going to respect a professional way of, of dealing with them. And, you know, there's some bridges to repair. Uh, he says our government will ensure, continue to ensure necessary funding for a world-class health care in Ontario, but this issue must be more about it must be about more than money. It will also be about embracing change, innovation, deploying technology more effectively, and committing to new models, collaborative, and patient care. Uh, does is that is that uh, double speak for cuts? Uh, I think that's double speak for our governments really not knowing where to go <laughs> on this file. I mean. I mean, we remember the story of eHealth, right, where mm-hmm. there was an attempt to, to move forward with uh, new models of patient care and new technologies, and it got, you know, it was a, a massively uh, tied down in poor management and became a, a complete boondoggle for the previous government. So, I mean, I think, you know, when you have as big and complex an operation as the healthcare system and uh, with a degree of change that's going on in it, you know, on a technological basis uh, from year to year, I mean, it's hard for a government to go beyond that kind of uh, that kind of muddle speak. But you know, certainly with with healthcare, they do have a problem in that it's a huge part of the provincial budget. It's one where uh, you know the cost pressures are uh, constant, uh, and so ultimately, and you know, including in in the sense of the doctors that they were going to get a nice raise with the election of a conservative government, and that hasn't happened. So they're maybe not that pleased. But you know, there's those kinds of cost drivers. So how are you going to cut six billion dollars out of the the provincial budget? without touching uh, health care is, is going to be a difficult question. And so, yeah, there may be cuts coming, but I'm not sure the lingu- language really signals that so much as I don't, I don't think uh, the Conservative government and the Conservative Party going into this election really had a clear project or plan about how they were going to change health care, uh, you know, which is fair enough. It's a complex program. But I think they're still trying to figure out how can they improve the system uh, and do so in a way that involves uh, fewer dollars. Uh, we all praise our universal government health care, and uh, despite the, the trials and tribulations along the way, are we naive to think government can manage this? Are we asking too much of government to manage a file as this? Uh, I Considering think we've had this discussion over and over again. Yeah, I mean, I think if we're expecting perfection, uh, we are expecting too much. Uh, I mean, I think we see that given the complexity of uh, of the healthcare system, just in terms of its size to be managed as a bureaucracy, you know, on top of which a series of important decisions have to be made about, well, you know, what, what life-saving technology is, are we going to spend money on and which one are we ultimately going to let people die because we can't justify spending that kind of money, those sorts of decisions. Uh, you know, we're always going to have uh, complications and letdowns. But I think the experience going across countries is that all countries have, you know, similar difficulties, uh, regardless of public and private mix. Uh, and so, you know, it's hard to know what would be the alternative that would yield a better solution. I mean, certainly certain forms of partial privatization have ended up in boondoggles in the Ontario case. Uh, certainly if we look to the United States and the difficulty of managing these health management organizations and dealing with the complexity uh, of a private insurance sector, you know, it doesn't lead us to believe that that's some kind of magical solution. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we should expect to be disappointed in our health care system. Uh, we should probably demand our politicians uh, look at other countries that have leapt ahead of Canada in terms of how they've run their public, uh, their public health care systems and, and ask, you know, how come we can't see that kind of transformative management here? What is Ford's biggest challenge moving forward in this new year? Uh, does he continue to, to, to shoot wide and get involved with things like the prime minister and carbon tax? Um, or does he keep, well, or even the OPP or whatever, or does he, or Toronto City Council, or does he get more involved, more focused on the province and these things he has talked about? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a problem for Doug Ford is that he's not an experienced politician and he hasn't been trained for the job of premier, right? I mean, we, I don't think we've ever in Ontario had a premier with less uh, preparation for the job as Doug Ford. And so, I mean, I think the biggest challenge for him is to actually uh, keep his mouth closed and learn <laughs> from uh, the people around him and from uh, the upper reaches of the bureaucracy about well, what's actually involved in making a province run well? Uh, I mean, I think that's really the biggest challenge that he's going to face this year. 
he was elected, uh, you know, with about 40% of the votes, which is, you know, smaller for a change election compared to Mike Harris or Dalton McGuinty when they were, were brought into power. Uh, he's governed in a way that hasn't uh, really sustained a honeymoon with Ontarians, so his, his base hasn't grown. In fact, it's become maybe in some ways a bit more narrow. And so if he's going to engage in a very difficult program of finding a way to uh, balance a budget, even while you know sustaining health care transfers and putting money into uh, subways in Toronto and so forth, uh, he's going to have to walk a very fine line. I don't think he can afford to be going off script uh, in order to settle uh, you know small things that are important to him. Uh, but which may not, in fact, be that important for the overall health of, of Ontario moving forward. So I think in many ways the biggest challenge for Doug Ford is to, to not be the Doug Ford that got elected, the Doug Ford, uh, you know, who is bigger than life, bombastic, uh, you know, saying things without having really thought about whether he can deliver them. And he has to find a way of becoming a, a Doug Ford who can who can govern and govern in a way that expands his appeal beyond maybe about 30 to 35% of the population that will be with them regardless. All right, let's talk about the other two parties. NDP as the official opposition. Uh, Andrea Horvath's had many kicks at this can now that they're uh, in the seat across from the Premier. Uh, the performance, uh, are they building on what the, on the opportunity that they have? Uh well, I think to date they haven't been, uh, you know, they haven't been terrible in terms of being an opposition party and bringing to the fore a number of questions that would be important to Ontarians, you know, whether it was around, you know, diluting uh, the protection of the green belt, uh, you know, or a number of other uh, issues such as that. I don't think they've been particularly effective, though, in defining an alternative line of government, which is where they have to get if they wish to be elected in, in four years' time. So, you know, much like uh, Tom Mulcair, uh, when he was a uh, leader of the opposition in uh, Ottawa, you know, there's a capacity to be the prosecutor-in-chief day-to-day in question period, but you do have to still define an alternative line. And I think there, uh, the NDP's maybe been too quick to play the outrage of the day, rather than thinking, you know, more broadly about how they appeal to the uh, the people who voted Conservative last time, they want to uh, attract them to uh, vote NDP next time. Should they spend less time on Doug Ford in his persona and more about uh, more on that alternative? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly attacking Doug Ford on his persona probably does nothing for them. Uh, in fact, you know, many people who support Doug Ford support him precisely because he's not a, a typical politician. They see him uh, as someone who's a bit less polished, uh, who speaks a uh, straightforward manner, how they'd probably like to see themselves. And so certainly people who uh, make fun of him or treat him as unpolished or a rube uh, are probably actually playing right into his hands. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, the way of trying to uh, attack Doug Ford, if they're going to be successful on that personality aspect, is to really uh, you know, question whether he isn't who he says he is. Uh, and I think that's probably going to be more effective for them, that he's not the plain-spoken person, but he's, you know, and this is what they try to do, I think, around the question of the minimum wage, to say, well, actually, he's the mouthpiece of the Chamber of Commerce, right? And so that's probably a more effective way for uh, for the NDP if they're going to try to move on, on the personality basis. What about the Liberal rebuild, uh, liberal rebuild provincially? Uh, do we want to hear from them yet? Uh yeah, I suspect. I mean, there's a there's a strong core of people who are uh, liberals. You know, probably about at least one in five, if many as maybe perhaps as many as one of three in one in three Ontarians who probably would see themselves as liberal. I mean, they maybe didn't vote liberal in the last election, but they still see themselves as part of that identity, and they probably want to see a party that's rebuilding itself uh, and taking active steps to to deal with. Uh, significant inability to raise money since the election, and uh, really a lack of of identity in terms of uh, what they stand for and what they're going to do in in the uh, at Queen's Park. So, I mean, I think the Liberals uh, do have to move forward on that and probably relatively quickly uh, from a financial perspective. If they don't have a new leader, I think they're going to find it very hard to pay off their election de- debts in the next three years. So, uh, yeah, they, they have every reason to move forward. Uh, you know, the question is whether they can uh, they can do what uh, the federal party did uh, after the 2011 defeat. It's not clear that they have a Justin Trudeau waiting in the wings provincially to to take up that role. Uh, it's also you know unclear how they are going to position themselves to come back. Uh, are they going to try and position themselves 
as a sort of party of Paul Martin, uh, kind of more efficient managers of the budget than the Conservatives who claim to be the efficient managers? Or are they going to do more like Trudeau and try to, to eat the NDP's lunch by swinging uh, quite far to the left, at least in their rhetoric? Uh, how do they make that decision? Do, do, do you think they know why they lost yet? And, and, and many may say for that reason they spent too much time focusing on the NDP instead of being the centrist party. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that's really going to play out in the leadership race. We'll, we'll see some candidates, some who probably are going to represent more uh, the idea that uh, the Liberals to win have to be credible among uh, swing Liberal uh, Conservative voters in the suburbs of Toronto. Uh, and then there will be other candidates who will uh, ultimately make the appeal that, no, they have to be the true party of social reform and return to you know, what they see as the successes under Kathleen Wynne, despite <laughs> the repute that that received from the Ontario population. Uh, I think the challenge for the Liberal Party is, uh, I think the latter view is probably more uh, popular among their rank-and-file base, the people who are going to take out uh, memberships and uh, uh, make a decision in the race. Uh, but the first course might, in fact, be the one that's uh, more likely one to bring them back to party status uh, and to find them the money they're going to need to run a successful campaign uh, next time and, in fact, the time after. Uh, the Prime Minister and uh, Premier Kathleen Wynne were quite tight uh, after her initial victory. Uh, d- d- can the federal politicians learn anything from this and what has played out in Ontario? Uh, well, I mean, I don't think there's much that they wouldn't know already. I mean, Andrew Scheer at the moment, for instance, I think is is having to figure out how to walk the tightrope of trying to gain Doug Ford's uh, populist appeal in, in the suburbs of Toronto. Uh, without having to wear the aspects of his policies that people find uh, problematic. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the politicians are all trying to figure out a way that they can get the maximum uh, benefit for the minor, you know, the, the smallest, uh, the cost of it. I mean, I'm sure we'll see Jagmeet Singh trying his best to piggyback on the, the successes of Andrea Horvath to grow the NDP support into new areas in that last uh, campaign. I mean, I think the bigger question will be for uh, the Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, how much... Uh, time and energy of his uh, Ontario caucus, which is, you know, a, a considerable number of MPs, a considerable capacity uh, to try and revive a Liberal brand in Ontario. Uh, to what extent is he going to enable that to happen, or to how much is he going to insist that it all be spent on re-electing his government this coming fall? So I mean, that's maybe a bigger question, is, is how, does, uh, how do Liberal organizers and Liberal officials split their time between the rebuild provincially, but then also the necessity to win in Ontario if they're going to sustain a government at the national level. I can't let you go without asking you, Peter, your thoughts on the phone conversation between the Prime Minister and the President that happened in the last 24 hours. Should this have happened sooner in regard to the detainees and what's been happening with China? Well, uh well, I mean, I guess we can always say things should have happened sooner. I mean, I, I think it's really a period uh, that we can't think of a comparison with, where the number of contentious mm. issues between uh, the Canadian and American governments and the complete lack of predictability uh, on the part of the American president. Uh, and so, you know, what's going to work or what's not going to work, uh, I mean, it's it's a very strange world of reading tea leaves you know, rather than following, you know, what were pretty well-known rules about how Canada and the United States should uh, deal with uh, situations of conflict and difference of opinion that, you know, had been set out really over the 70 years before that, since the Second World War. Uh, you know, it's pretty well-known protocols. Um, so, yeah, should have happened sooner? Yes, probably, but uh, I wouldn't want to be <laughs> anywhere close to, to coming up with strategies for dealing with Canada's uh, relationship with the United States, because it seems... You know, any any sort of wrong move, which, you know, we can't really tell beforehand, could lead to some sort of fit of peak. And before you know it, hmm. another industry is facing tariffs. So. Peter Grave has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.